morning. It's great to see everybody today. I know we have several guests who are here with us. Um, and so if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Bill, and it's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at the table. We always love it when new folks come to our services. And so if you are new, here's what our hope is, not just for you, but for everybody who's a part of the table, is that we would hope that, to see your faith come alive. And what we mean by that is, I think it's so often really easy to view faith as that thing that sits on a shelf that's there when we need it, when we find ourselves in trouble. But what we hope is that faith becomes that determining factor for everything that we do um, and guides everything that we do in life. And so that's what we want to see um, as you are a part of the table. And for those of you that are joining us online, thanks for tuning in there as well. For those that are in the room, if you have questions about the church or anything that you hear, I would love to visit with you after the service this morning. I'll be available at our connection area, so out the doors to the right. I'll kind of hang out over there. Um, and we'd love to just introduce myself or answer any questions that you have. Um, not sure how you're feeling this morning. Um, time change Sunday, you would think by now we've had a long time to figure this thing out. Um, but you know, here's my experience with time change as a pastor in church. It messes everything up, and so we can never figure it out. And then, like, you know, it might affect people in the first service a little bit, but here's the problem now is that, like, your body is telling you it's time for lunch. So hopefully you had a good breakfast and you'll be okay for the next few minutes. We'll try to get through it as fast as we can because I've been up since 4.30 this morning because 4.30, you know, a few hours ago was 5.30. And, you know, so I'm real messed up today. So I'm kind of like in nap mode ready for lunch. So that's where we're at today. So glad that you're here. Um, in the Christian subculture, there is what is viewed by people who are outside the church as a strange obsession with the end. I think it's important for us to, to recognize that. There's a, people outside the church view the obsession that we have with the end, both the end of life and the end of times as being odd. I want to share this story with you. This is from the book Another Gospel by Alyssa Childers. She shares this experience that she had. She says, when I learned that my church was hosting a production of, tra of a traveling Christian drama on heaven and hell that toured all over the world, I saw a chance to help my friend meet Jesus. I heard stories of people being so moved by the production that the altars were flooded after it was over. This was it. This was the perfect opportunity to share the gospel with Christina. Surely she wouldn't be able to resist the persuasive depictions of heaven and hell. Surely she would realize how quickly this life is over and how important her life and death choices would be now. Surely she would give her heart to Christ. On the day of the performance, Christina met me in the lobby and we found our seats. Excitement and anticipation hung in the air as lights faded to black. Under a red tone hue, Sandy Patty's Via Dolorosa sung as Jesus staggered down the middle aisle carrying his cross. Tears misted my eyes as I watched the depiction of my Savior stumbling to his death, the Savior who meant more to me than heaven or hell. Surely he had, had, had it all figured out and I would one day realize that my anxiety had been unnecessary. I snapped to attention as the music suddenly changed to a fr frantic, drum-driven beat. Regular people just like me began hitting and whipping him, mocking him and spitting on him. My breath caught in my throat as I imagined the significance of this. I, a sinner, nailed Jesus to the cross. It was my rebellion that put him there and this great love and mercy that ordained it to happen. Enter the villain a maniacal howling cackle. The devil emerged from a fiery pit to join the abusers in beating Jesus and nailing him to the cross. 
The devil's face was covered in black and white makeup, making him look more like a member of the band Kiss than the prince of the power of the air. Thus was my conception of hell and the devil. A raving mad Gene Simmons lookalike emerging from a red-lit block of dry ice with an evil laugh that rivaled that of Jack Nicholson's Joker. After Jesus was crucified, he rose again, giving the devil and his gang of demons quite the butt-kicking across the stage before ascending into heaven, where everything was made of white fabric and aluminum foil, and everyone wore baggy, floor-length white robes and just kind of stood there for all eternity. For the remainder of the play, we watched person after person find themselves at the shiny tin gates after their untimely deaths. I was on the edge of my seat awaiting the fate of each eternal soul. Would Jesus appear, give them a big hug, and usher them behind the big mysterious white curtain? Or would the devil emerge laughing from his scarlet pit and drag them into hell like something from an Ozzy Osbourne video? Either way, the devil seemed to be having a ball in hell. I don't remember exactly how the altar call went. Maybe the pastor said something like, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you if you know where you're going if you were to die tonight. There was an intense energy in the air as the altar practically was overrun. At one point, the pastor asked us to pray for those who we knew had not made Jesus the Lord of their life. Then we were prompted to ask the person next to us, would you like me to walk you down down the altar with you? I took all the brass that I had to whisper this question to Christina. I imagine she was deeply moved and simply needed a little nudge from a loving friend. I slightly opened my eyes, expecting tears rolling down her face. But instead, she was quiet and peaceful, respectfully keeping her eyes closed and her head bowed. Oh, no thanks, she politely whispered back. How can this be? Did she miss the part about burning in hell forever? Did she not believe the devil when he announced that he had inspired all the beer commercials on TV? Did she not think that spending eternity in a white draped metallic room being hugged by Jesus sounded great? Apparently she didn't. We left quietly as Christina thanked me for inviting her. I couldn't figure out why Christina was so moved while so many others were captivated and persuaded. I'm sure there are many Christians today who once walked the aisle at a showing of a similar church production. I'm sure they went on to develop a more nuanced theology of heaven and hell. But for many years of my life, my picture of hell mirrored that of this drama. If you are around my age and you grew up going to youth group, you went to that play. Now, maybe not that one specifically, but one that was a lot like it. I did. And if you didn't go to a play like that, maybe you went to what we refer to as hell houses. Right? So we just finished Halloween where you go to haunted houses. And so a hell house is kind of a Christian version of a haunted house, but instead of chainsaw massacres, you walk through depictions of hell to scare you into heaven. And then at the end, typically, is a tinfoil room that, shows you what heaven is going to be like. And I just want to be honest with you. As Christians, we come up with some weird stuff. And I'm not, this is not to point a finger at anybody else because I'm not immune to it either. We can sit around in a meeting and come up with the greatest idea ever. And then a few years later, we get away from it a little bit and look back and it's like, man, that was kind of weird that we did that. But that story and that play, it shows, it reveals this obsession that we have with the end, both the end of life and the end of times. If people just knew what the end was going to be like, it would change everything. And likely, if you have been around church at all, 
your view of the end times has been highly influenced by what we read in what's the, the Left Behind book series later was made into a couple of movies. The book series was really popular about 20 years ago, and it describes end times events. It starts off with what's referred to as the rapture. So when this period when believers are taken from the earth and only unbelievers are left behind. That's where the title comes from, left behind. And so the picture of the early scenes in the book is an airplane that's half full of passengers because all the believers are gone. Cars that are abandoned on the side of the roads that had once been driven by believers and now they're gone. And so because of the books and the movies, we are convinced, people have been convinced that this is exactly how it is going to be. In fact, one person on an online review site said this, said, I know that this is fiction, but it's nice to know how things are really going to be. In other words, they read this book like historical fiction, right? If you read historical fiction, you know the stories of the people aren't true, but the events surrounding the circumstances in their lives are true. And that's the way that people have read these left behind books. Maybe the specific stories of the people aren't true, but certainly the events have to be true. Like this is exactly the way that it's going to be. And so then we're convinced that all of these end times events are going to happen in our lifetimes because of the way that they're described in the book. And on top of that, then we have all these people who make predictions about the time of the return of Christ. And this has been going on for decades. If you were an adult and in church around the time of uh, Y2K, do you remember the conversations that we were having in church then? We were sure that as soon as the clock struck midnight in the year 2000 that the world was going to cease to exist because our computers didn't know what to do with two zeros instead of numbers. We just knew that they were going to explode and then chaos would ensue. But yet, 23 years later, here we are. And with all of the predictions and all of the signs that are supposedly telling us that the return of Christ is near, none of those things have happened. And with every prediction and every sign, certainty over the end times events erodes just a little bit more. But yet I do think it is important to understand something about what is going to happen at the end of time. Because otherwise, we wouldn't have the book of Revelation, which tells us, lays out the events that are going to take place at some point. And so today, I want to talk about why it's significant. And it's not just important because, like, like how much longer do we have to live here? But it's important for how we live. And that's really what I want to get at this morning. And so, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to the passage that we're looking at. In the book of Revelation, it's the last book in the New Testament. So, if you find your way to the end, you should probably back up a couple of pages and you'll find the book of Revelation. We're going to look this morning at Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. So, if you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be on the screen as I read it. Or if you have the Bible app on your phone, uh, there's a live event there, so if you go on the bottom down to more, and then about halfway down the next screen is events, and you can find our live event and follow along there. There's lots of helpful information um, in there, including a place to take notes, 
Our digital bulletin is there. Some questions for reflection, lots of stuff in there. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, let me read it. Then I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse. Its rider called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike down the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you've been around church much at all, likely you have been confronted with this question, whether you've asked it out loud to someone or to yourself, or if it's just been internal. The question we all have to answer is, like, what do we really believe about the end times? In truth, there's lots of different ideas about the exact nature of end times events. Different views on how things are going to happen, different timelines that could be drawn up. And I know that there are some people who would like us to believe that there is one way that everything is going to happen. The truth is, we can have differences of opinions about the specifics of those things. And none of those things are gospel issues. And what I mean by that is, you don't have to believe the specifics about a certain way that the end times are going to unfold to be a follower of Jesus. We can have disagreements, and we should not argue over those disagreements. We can have conversations about them, but for the most part, we can disagree on the specifics and still agree on the gospel. That Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, then when we could do nothing, Jesus accomplished everything for us. And so the truth is, we don't know exactly how everything is going to happen, but I do think that there is at least one thing that is important for us to believe. So it's not just what do we have to believe, but what must we believe? Or what could we believe, but what must we believe about the end times events? And I think that there's one thing that we must believe. We must believe that Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he is going to bring justice. The one thing that we must believe is that one day Jesus is going to come back, and when he does, he is going to bring justice justice. That's what Revelation 19 is all about. It's about the fact that one day Jesus is going to come back, and when he does, justice is going to come. He's going to make everything right. So what Revelation 19 describes is what is referred to as the second coming of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus is the birth of Jesus when he was born in a stable in Bethlehem. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. It's almost Christmas season already. So we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But this is the second coming of Jesus. It's a time where Jesus comes and there is this battle. He defeats evil and then brings us into what is referred to as the millennium, a period of Christ's reign on earth, which probably tips my hand a little bit about my own personal belief about the exact nature of end times events. But then it leads us into all eternity. And there are all kinds of questions that we want to ask about this. But before we ask those questions, I want to go back to the text and look at some of the imagery that we read and explain some things because it helps us to understand some of the nature of what is going to come. 
verse 11 again, it says, I saw heaven open and there was a white horse, its rider called Faithful and true. So when Jesus returns, he is going to return riding on a white horse. This is really significant. In the Roman Empire, when the Roman emperor would return to the city of Rome after fighting in battle and, and winning the victory, he rode back into the city of Rome on a white horse to take his place on the throne as the conquering king. It's interesting here, we read that Jesus will be coming riding on a white horse. This rider called Faithful and True, but he is riding to judge and make war with justice. But here's the picture that we're seeing, because Jesus is riding on a white horse. That's the horse of the victor. What we understand is that the victory has already been won, even though the battle has not yet been fought. The outcome is not in doubt. The victory has been won, though the battle has not yet taken place. We continue to read, and we read these names of Jesus. Ryder being, uh, he's called faithful and true. Later, in, at the end of verse 13, he's called the word of God. But he also, at the end of verse 12, he has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us about Jesus. And we can understand a lot about Jesus. But the fact that he has a name that no one knows except himself helps us to understand that we don't know everything that there is to know. And we may not ever know everything that there is to know. It says in verse 13, he wore a robe dipped in blood. Different ideas as to the specifics of what that means, the reference to that, but many commentators and Bible scholars believe that the blood that his robe was dipped in is the blood of martyrs, those people who've lost their lives because of their faith in Jesus. And it is a reminder of why justice is coming. It says in verse 15, a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike down the nations with it and he will rule them with an iron rod. It's really interesting that this victory that is going to come, the victory that has already been secured, is not going to come about through the strength of an army or through weaponry, but it comes about through the word of God. Genesis chapter 1, how was the earth created? It was created with God's word. God said, and it was so. And the way that justice is going to be brought about is through the word of God. And then at the end in verse 16, it says he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, meaning no one nor nothing can stand in his way. We know that one day Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, he is going to bring justice. But again, there are all kinds of questions that we want to ask and answer about the nature of that and all of these things, and some of it grows out of our obsession with the end times. Because what is the one question that everybody wants to know about the end time events? When? When is it going to happen? Just tell us when it's going to happen. We think that that's going to change everything. Just if we knew when. And I know that there are people that would like us to think we can know when. Because we have all the people that make the predictions all the time. The truth is we do not know when. In fact, the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 24, 36, he said this, No one knows the day or the hour, only the Father in heaven. I find this really fascinating. At least at that moment when Jesus said that, he didn't know when. He said only the Father knows when. And so I know people make the predictions and stuff, but 
man, it sure seems like if Jesus didn't know when, then we can't figure it out either. Now, there are signs in Scripture, but I don't think Scripture is, has a, a hidden code book somewhere. If we just put the right pieces together in the right way, we can figure it out. Because as Jesus talked about the signs of his coming, he said it was like this. Like it'd be like in the days of Noah. Meaning, in spite of the warning, people would just be going on with life like normal and they would be surprised when it happens. So the truth is, we don't know exactly when. But yet at the same time, I do think that Scripture teaches that we should be living like it could happen at any time. We don't have time to go through all the the details, but there are several places in the New Testament where we see evidence of people thinking that Jesus could return during their lifetime. Like in the book of 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to this church. This is my paraphrase of what he said. Hey, you haven't, the, about the day of the Lord, which is a, a different way to talk about the return of Christ, he said to them, my paraphrase, you didn't miss it. And then later, again, this is my paraphrase, he said, hey, you can't just go outside and look up into the sky all day. Maybe you should get to work and provide for yourself. Well, the people in the church living like the return of Jesus could happen at any time, so much so they thought it could happen like tomorrow. And then we read at the end of the book of Revelation, the words of Jesus himself saying, Behold, I am coming soon. Now, in popular end times belief, like left behind stuff because of the way that we read it, people will say, the generation that is the last generation on earth before the return of Christ is on earth right now. What I would say to that is it could be, like Jesus can come back at any time. We should live like he can come back at any time, but we don't necessarily know that. But every generation from the time of Christ believed that they were the last generation. And we should live like that. But then you might be wondering, well, Okay, if that's the case, if we should live like he can come back at any time, then why hasn't he come back yet? And that question can oftentimes become the cry of our hearts in the midst of the brokenness that we experience in this life, in the midst of the challenges that we face. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, our hearts can cry out, God, why would you let this happen? Why why don't you do something about this? Why do you let wickedness and evil go on in the world? How much longer do we have to put up with it? question pierces our souls. But yet we have an answer as to why it hasn't happened yet. 1 Peter 3, 8-10 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. A year is as a thousand days, a thousand days is as a year, meaning that time to God is different than time to us. But God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. The reason that God hasn't just stepped in and ended everything and finally defeated evil and wickedness forever is because of the graciousness and love of God, desiring to see sinful people, broken people come to faith in Jesus so they can spend eternity with him forever. I'm going to go back to the text because there is some language here that I want, I want to talk about a little bit. 
It says at the end of verse 15, he will rule them with an iron rod. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. There's some heavy language there. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God. So a question that we might want to ask is, this picture that's being described here of Jesus and what he is going to do seems very different than the picture of Jesus that we read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because in the Gospels, we read about Jesus who is known as a friend of sinners. We see Jesus extending God's grace and mercy to sinful people at every opportunity. And so is grace and love incompatible with wrath and anger that we read about here in Revelation 19? And I don't think that those two things are incompatible with each other. First, the reason for that is that I think what we read in Revelation 19 is in keeping with the character of God. See, if God is holy, meaning that he is completely perfect, without fault, without any sin, without any darkness in him at all, for God to be holy, he can't just look out at the evil that exists and say, hey, it doesn't matter, I'll just wipe the slate clean without any repentance and without any acknowledgement of wrong. At the same time, it's important for us to understand, too, that this is bringing about justice is ultimately an act of grace and love towards believers because what he is doing is making everything right so that one day we will experience an eternity that is free from sin and wickedness. And so it is the grace of God extended through his wrath. But it's important to understand why. Because the wrath of God is being stored up, Scripture tells us, for the last days. And ultimately, the wrath of God is going to be poured out against evil and wickedness that exists in the world. If we were to continue reading in Revelation, getting into uh, the the next section that concludes chapter 19 and into verse 20, what we would see is the armies of God standing opposed by the armies that represent evil and wickedness in this world, which include Satan and his enemies, his his demons. And we see the wrath of God being poured out in this battle that ultimately, yes, does extend to sinful people, people that do not believe in Jesus. And it's a heavy scene. had a conversation with a friend of mine recently who had been visiting churches. He was looking for a new church to attend, been visiting around a little bit, and actually attended a small group in, from one of the churches that he had attended. And in the small group, they were talking about the wrath of God. And as they were talking about this, the, the, the tone of the conversation was, the wrath of God is so great, it's so awesome and exciting, and I can't wait for God's wrath to be poured out on the earth. I do not believe that that should be our reaction to what is to come. But as we understand that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on sin and then ultimately on sinful people, it should grieve us to know that there is no, uh, nothing else could happen, that it has to be that way. It should break our hearts as to the reality of sin that exists in our world. And so the truth is, when it comes to end times events, you know, we don't know 
all the answers. We don't know all the specifics, but one thing we do know is that one day Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, he's going to bring about justice. He's going to make everything right. But the purpose of our time together this morning isn't just to inform us because what we understand should change the way that we live. And so what difference does this make in our life? Let me, I'm going to give you two things really quickly. How do we live in light of our understanding that one day Jesus is going to come back first? We live not in fear, but in hopeful expectation. We're not afraid of what is to come, but we're hope, hopeful and expectant of what is to come. Something that happens, has happened to me a lot over the years. A lot of this comes from what we read about in left behind books and different things like that, where we're convinced about certain signs and things. People will come to me and say, hey, does this mean this, something that's happening in our world? Does that mean that? Uh, is this a, a sign of the mark of the beast? Is this uh, the precursor to the one world government? All this stuff is found in the left behind books, that popular um, end times view. And there's a lot of like hand-wringing over these questions, like, should we do something to stop it? Like, what do we do? And here's been my attitude all, throughout all of this. Every time somebody asks the question, why are we so afraid? Because unless I'm mistaken, Jesus wins. And so we don't actually have anything to be afraid of. And I don't know if these things are a sign of this and that is what that is. I don't know that. But even if it is, you know what that means? It means that we are that much closer to an eternity that is free from sin and wickedness. And that's actually something for us to look forward to, not to be afraid of. I always go back to what John said at the end of the book of Revelation. So John one of the disciples, wrote Revelation. And primarily what, it, what the book is, is a series of visions that he had. And John saw all kinds of weird stuff. He saw some really bad stuff. He saw some stuff that I'm not sure he understood what he was seeing when he saw it. But at the end of the book, here was his conclusion. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And that should be the prayer of our hearts. In the midst of everything... And it's not always going to be great. The cry of our heart should be, even so come, Lord Jesus. We should be desiring his return because it means something better for us. Second thing, the way that this makes a difference in our lives is that we should live with energetic mission and sacrificial service. Recognizing that one day Jesus is going to come and he's going to bring about justice, it helps us to understand that we need to live with energetic mission and sacrificial service because we recognize that something better is coming and it's something that's better than anything we could ever imagine. It is a, an existence that's free from wickedness and sin. It's something that like, we don't even understand how good it is. We should be looking forward to that day, and it should be our desire to bring as many people as possible with us so that they experience the same hope that we have. That's why we live with energetic mission and sacrificial service. You know, why do we have things like Serve Sunday? So last week we didn't have services here, but we went out to serve. Why do we do that? Because we recognize something better is coming. 
And we need to help people to see that something better is coming. And so if we can extend the love of Jesus into people's lives in a practical way, maybe that earns a hearing so that we can share with them the love of Jesus. Why is it that our mission is to lead people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus? Not just to entertain people, but to make disciples? Because ultimately, we want to see as many people as possible enter into the kingdom, enjoy the blessedness of the hope that lies ahead of us. We're to live with energetic mission and sacrificial service in light of what is to come. I've said this before, and I really believe this. I believe that for every one of us who are followers of Jesus, that God has placed someone in our lives that we have the unique opportunity to reach. So if you're a follower of Jesus, God has placed someone in your life. God has a plan for your life. And part of that plan for your life is that God has placed someone in your life that he's given you the unique opportunity to reach. The question is for you as we finish this morning, who is that person? And what are you going to do about the opportunity that God has given to you? Maybe it's somebody you work with. Maybe it's somebody in your neighborhood. Maybe it's a another parent on your child's sports team, whatever it is, but there's somebody that God has placed in your life that he wants you to reach. Identify that person, begin praying for that person, that they would come to faith in Jesus. Look for opportunities to have spiritual conversations, and maybe that starts with, hey, can I pray for you when you find out that they're going through something difficult and you follow up with them? Maybe you invite them to church where they can hear about the love of God and the, the, the message of Jesus, how he laid down his life so that by faith in him we could have eternal life. And maybe you can invite them to Jesus so that they can experience the hope of heaven too. When we get stuck trying to figure out all the details of all of the things that are going to happen, people outside the church look at us and say, man, you guys are just nuts. But when we recognize what we do know for sure, that one day Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, he's bringing about justice. He's going to make everything right. And that's what we have to look forward to. It changes the way that we live. Hopeful expectancy of what is to come Man, we want to do everything possible to bring as many people as we can with us. That's what God has called us to. Will you pray with me?